Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Exchanges, a Cambridge University Press podcast, a joint production of Cambridge University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Aurelian Krayutu, author of the book Why Not Moderation? Letters to Young Radicals. Aurelian, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, um, as I say in the book, I was born on the other side of the Iron Curtain, the wrong side, as it were, or perhaps the better one. I don't know. But I uh, I grew up in, uh, in a communist country, that is Romania. And uh, as I keep on saying, I've learned the lesson of moderation by living in a non-democratic regime or a regime that pretended to be democratic without being fully democratic. So it took me, uh, I think, um, uh, a few years to realize that ideas do have consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences and good ideas have good consequences. And and this is how I got um, a knack for uh, moderation. I think also the authors that I I came to appreciate over the years um, instilled in me an appreciation for this virtue um, uh, foremost on my list of preferred authors, uh, I would uh, mention the name of Alexis de Tocqueville, the Frenchman who came to America in 1831-32 and wrote arguably the best book on American democracy. He's not the only one who instilled in me this appreciation for moderation, but at the end of the day, I would put him very high on the list. I also wrote a dissertation at Princeton on a group of thinkers that sought to carve out a middle ground between revolution and reaction, and that was the group of the French doctrinaires, led by François Guizot, who was a prominent intellectual and politician in 19th century France. So this should give you a a broad idea of how I came to write about moderation for over 20 years, uh, sometimes even unbeknownst to me. So I'm known among my friends this is a joke, I guess, as the guy who writes immoderately about moderation. <laughs> I have to say, in in your book, you wear that learning lightly. This is not a uh, a, 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 a a you know a, a, a dense tract of political philosophy. It's one in which you are presenting these ideas in in a very accessible manner. What led you to undertake this book, and 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 what led you to undertake? Uh, a book that is 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 geared, in particular, as the title suggests, to young radicals. So this is not my first book. I've written previously several academic books, but this is my first trade book, what we call a trade book intended for a broad audience, which is not necessarily academic, perhaps non-academic above all. Uh, intelligent, uh, passionate readers who are interested in broad political questions. And I think that is what motivated me to write. Uh, As an academic, I'm limited to a very small audience. So academic books, purely academic books, sell up to 500 copies over a stretch of many years. Um, And we don't reach an audience. Um, There's something of a public intellectual in me when I wrote this book. I wanted to reach out to people who are not interested in history of ideas, but are interested in the fate of our society, in the fate of liberal democracy. There are some uh, permanent concerns here and present concerns at the same time. 
uh, what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to live in a decent society? Those are broad questions. But how can we save our uh, liberal democracy today when it is attacked from both the left and the right? Um, mostly from the right. Um, uh, I, I, that's a question that I think it's urgent, and uh, I was kind of motivated to to uh, address it. Now, the format of the book is is new to me, uh, and I thought that rather than presenting my ideas um, ex cathedra, so to speak, in a slightly self righteous manner, uh, would not be the way to go. So the dialogue is essential here. I imagine a dialogue. Um, there's nothing new here. Uh, Plato wrote dialogues uh, many uh, thousands year, uh, years ago. But I think that the dialogue uh, that I imagine here is new because it's uh, with two young radicals uh, from the left and the right. I gave them names, uh, Lauren from the left, Rob from the right. But I also tried to put, let's say, in, into their lines, uh, so to speak, um, what journalists from the left and the right have been saying about the state of liberal democracy and how we should go about reforming or saving it. So uh, I imagined the dialogues, but I also relied on articles that were written on both sides of the spectrum to kind of, kind of give some concreteness to what Lauren and Rob had to say about democracy. Now, you begin your book uh, with a prologue in which you talk about radical moderation. Now, that's a phrase that might seem like an oxymoron until you read your description of it. Could you perhaps explain exactly what radical moderation is and, and, and what it consists of? Well, uh, you said I begin the book with radical moderation. There is a caveat lector. There is a trigger warning before, which is also important because it's linked <laughs> to the concept of uh, radical moderation. <laughs> um, I apologize. <laughs> I No, no, that's good because I think that... Um, uh, the concept itself is supposed to trigger. People are not uh, accustomed to uh, linking radicalism and moderation. Moderation is seen as something that is the opposite of radicalism, which is partly true, and it's something seen wrongly, in my view, as um, a conservative virtue meant to defend the status quo, the existing institutions, without promoting reforms, and that's wrong. I want to show in the book that moderation does have a rebellious side. It is supposed to be in the service of a certain vision. And that vision is often neglected. That's a vision of a decent society. It's not the just society articulated by theorists like John Rawls and others. That's an abstract vision. Moderates go for a decent society. A decent society is one in which there aren't clearing inequalities, civil and political and economic inequalities. Um, there's a certain ethos uh, of compromise, of uh, respect, of dignity. Uh, and uh, that is part of the vision of radical moderation, as I understand it. There are some figures that have, let's say, incarnated this ideal in history, and I talked about them briefly in a letter in the book. Uh, in American history, for example, we can look at uh, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, whom I see as bold moderates who acted as moderates in tragic times. But there are others that, that I can point to in the 20th century, and the figure that comes to mind is Albert Camus. Camus was someone who is not necessarily seen as a moderate, 
but he, he could be seen as a radical moderate in my view because his version of moderation was one of a rebellious moderation. So you don't have to accept status quo. So in that sense, moderation is radical because it is the alternative to ideology. And I insist on this issue in a chapter of the book, in a letter, moderation as an alternative to ideology. What do I mean by that? Well, most people define themselves by their, their allegiance to a certain ideology that could be on the left or on the right. Um, moderation challenges that because um, it says that we have to be uh, flexible, we have to adapt to life as it changes. There are many changes that are occurring in life, and we need to be flexible, we need to follow the contours of life. We can't fix ourselves in one category, we can't declare ourselves once forever to be on the right or on the left. Sometimes we need to lean a little bit on the left, sometimes we need to lean a little bit on the right, sometimes we need to be in the center, whatever that may be. And that is the radical part of moderation because it involves judgment. You can't fix yourself in a category. It's not one dimensional. You have to understand where it's needed for you to go and, and for how long. So all of there's no algorithm. And that's the part of radical moderation that I like. The image that I give in the book in another letter is that of a tightrope walker. Uh, that's not something that most of us practice. But a tightrope walker represents exactly what I have in mind when I think about radical moderation. It's someone who seeks to keep his or her balance. Uh, keeping one's balance is a difficult thing when you are high on a rope because you are exposed to, to the winds. You need to lean in the opposite uh, direction sometimes. You need to lean against the winds. Uh, you need to have a... Um, a sense of the final destination. You can't go backwards on the on the wire, from what I know, from what I've seen at least. Uh, you need to to go forward, and to do that, you need to understand the forces that that are against you, the forces that work with you, and uh, I think you need a little bit of luck. So all of this speaks about the concept of radical moderation as I understand it. It's a long answer to a complex concept, an oxymoron, as you suggested at the beginning. But hey, I did have that trigger warning at the beginning. You will be surprised. <laughs> so I, I, can, I kind of protected myself against, against this. Um, what's this oxymoron all about? Mm -hmm. Now, what you describe presumes a... Uh, a, a political environment in which there is that latitude for maneuver. And, 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 and this is what we typically see in terms of a liberal democracy, where we have the ability to make choices and make corrections within a particular framework. And, and yet, as you have, as you presented in, in your, uh, in, in your, uh, you, the, the two people you're uh, having the exchange with, that that both of them express the sense that that it won't work. And this is where you you get to your description of the extremes, and 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 what comes from it is the sense that that maybe liberal democracy uh, is uh, is 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 no longer functional. That the sense that that, that comes from them, and, and and here as you noted, you're reflecting the works that you read to in, inform the the these two uh, avatars that you've created that. That liberal democracy is 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 failing or has failed. Yet you 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 take a stance against that in, in terms of arguing about what liberal democracy the, the the prospects for liberal democracy can it be saved and 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 what 
examples do you draw upon to make that claim? That is the beginning of the book. I think um, we start from um, uh, this question, can liberal democracy be saved? Should it be saved? And and if so, how? And I think that um, the fact that the book starts with that conversation between Lauren, Rob, and myself Um, is not an accident because there is this sense today on both the left and the right that uh, there is something rotten in the foundations of our liberal house, that there is something that doesn't work. Um, And I I have been um, reading very carefully uh, the critics of uh, liberal democracy. Uh, One of them is a good friend of mine, uh, Patrick Denin, who teaches at the University of Notre Dame and wrote two important books, Why Liberalism Failed and Regime Change. And I think that what these critics have to say is very important for us to take into account and engage with, because there is a sense in which, and I, I share it sometimes, that that we need we need a change of course. We need to to um, reinvent or perhaps invent new new ways of uh, dealing with old issues or perhaps new institutions or end certain practices. And I do think that um, there is a legitimate concern in this regard, and we discussed this. But I also want to remind the critics of liberal democracy from the left and the right. Um, I didn't mention on the left, uh, uh, Sam Moyne, who is a very important critic who wants to revigorate uh, uh, liberal liberal democracy from the left. What what I want to remind uh, these critics is the fact that the foundations uh, are precious and you cannot uh, uh, demolish the house and redo it from you know rebuilding the foundations the foundations are those that philosopher Karl Popper insisted on it's an open society it's based on experiments uh, conjectures refutations steps forward steps backward small experiments uh, um, and that is that is an open society. There's no final answer. Um, there's no panacea. Uh, there is no doctrine. There is no um, communist manifesto um, that would save us uh, in in solving our problems. And I think that um, it's it's important to remind this because otherwise we end up with what Vladimir Putin said in an interview with the Financial Times in June 2019. He said um, democracy, liberal democracy is dead and we need something new. Or this propensity to seeking something new is something that I saw in younger people and that's why we start the the dialogue with with, with that idea. But uh, I want to remind them that uh, we should not uh, help saw off, cut the branch on which we all sit, and that branch is liberal democracy. The argument against liberal democracy is that it's not achieving the goals, and and I think this is where you have people who are on either extreme, as you describe in the book, who feel that their goals are not being met that liberal democracy is a, and 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 the defense of it with 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 this with the argument for moderation is uh you know is you know, you know allowing this to happen you, you make a case that that moderation is a virtue and 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 you reference uh when you when you do so you you invert the the the, the famous statement by Barry Goldwater uh, you know, in, in which you know he argued that that you know moderation uh, is is not a virtue, and yet you're saying it very much is. In in what way is moderation a virtue, and what kind of virtue is it? Well, uh, Barry Goldwater, whom you mentioned, said extremism in the pursuit of liberty is no vice, 
moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. And I indeed <laughs> invert everything here. Um, um, so um, I think that it's important to start with, with Goldwater because, you know, that was a memorable phrase. Well, in the book, um, I tried to suggest and demonstrate through the letters here and uh, through the final uh, chapters uh, that um, we should uh, acknowledge that moderation has a long and complex tradition. Uh, we, we usually speak of moderation in the singular, and you asked me about moderation in a singular. And I want to uh, emphasize in the book that this is uh, too simplistic a view of moderation. We need to underscore the fact that it forms a true archipelago. Uh, it has many faces. There is a, a moral aspect, ethical aspect to moderation, and that is what we all know by the golden mean uh, and a virtue that allows one to uh, hold, uh, let's say, one's composure, uh, not uh, lean to the extreme, but there is also a political, institutional, and constitutional component to moderation. Uh, which is uh, illustrated by uh, what um, Montesquieu defined as moderate government. And that is a form of government that uh, distributes power widely, uh, perhaps linked to federalism, subsidiarity, uh, separation or balance of powers, executive veto, um, and judicial review. All this is part of what I would call moderate government, uh, in the wake of Montesquieu. And of course, then there is a style of moderation that is very important. And I devote to this topic um, a good part of the book. I think it's part four, if I'm not mistaken, in which we discuss what, what is the ethos of moderation. And here I talk, and I think it's important to point out that moderation is um, uh, a certain spirit uh, that is uh, illustrated by modesty, humility. I use in the book um, the Swedish term of lagom. Lagom means having neither too much nor too little, sharing with others. It's an interesting concept um, that I find at least intriguing. Uh, civility is another part of the ethos of moderation, prudence, and a form of realism and pragmatism. So uh, I think it's very important to speak of moderation with many faces. It's much more the proverbial golden mean between the extremes. Uh, it's not the virtue for all seasons. Uh, the constitutional institution aspect is very important to discuss, and it's usually neglected. And I think that it's also important to mention that there are true and false forms of moderation. There are many people who call themselves moderates without being true moderates. And I discuss this in uh, in the book um, when I dis when I mention um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s indictment of the white moderates in the uh, civil rights movement, um, in the times of the civil rights movement, when people were opposing important reforms in the name of a uh, fallacious moderation, something that is certainly not uh, the type of moderation that I endorse. So to give a long answer to a very short and good question, moderation has many faces, and it's important to understand its tradition. It's not something that that begins with this book, of course not. It goes back into the history thousands of years, and it's also to be found in different religions. It's something that, that is not often appreciated. Moderation is not a, only a Christian virtue. 
It's um, it's to be found in Confucianism. It's to be found in Islam, and I'm pretty sure in other religions that I'm 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 ignoring at the moment. So that that is that is an an entire agenda, I would say, for research. And and uh, what I've been doing in the last years is precisely to help launch such an agenda. There are other scholars who are working on this concept, and it's important for the general public to to be aware of that. One of the things that you do in 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 terms of that in this book is you are addressing some of the misconceptions about moderation, and I think uh, for me perhaps the the one that 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 I, I thought was most uh, uh, you know in, in particularly necessary in, in the context of your argument is this idea that uh, that sometimes this pe- people especially on the extreme. Uh, people who have very fervently held ideologies believe, which is that moderates don't believe in anything, that they have no political vision. I, I was wondering, and, and what you do is you push back against that. You explain that they do indeed have a political vision. It's just a very different uh, a type of political vision than the one that the, the than the sort of the Manichaean vision that that we oftentimes associate with people on the on the extreme left and the extreme right. Could you perhaps explain what that vision is and and, and how it connects to this the moderate approach you've described? Absolutely. Um one of the things that that I've seen invoked uh often is um um, the concept of moral clarity. Um, people who seem confident enough to make this claim believe that certain things are clear, morally clear, and, and are close for a conversation. And moderates have the courage to say it's difficult to achieve moral clarity or any on any subject. Uh, there are limits to moral clarity, and uh, we should be very cautious when we make uh, any let's say, uh, claims uh, using uh, the concept of moral clarity. We don't know what's what's permissible sometimes, what's best in many cases. We need to look for, for solutions. So that's one. Um, the second thing that moderates do here, and this is part of, I think, their political vision, is their rejection of manichaeism and litmus tests. Uh, I've seen many people on both the left and the right using litmus tests, my way or the highway. Uh, How you vote on abortion, how you vote on taxes defines your chances um, uh, uh, of being elected, re-elected or or thrown out of power. Um, Litmus tests do not uh, go well with moderation. And this propensity to divide the world in the forces of the good and the forces of evil, light versus darkness, is something that moderates uh, push against. Uh, so that's part of their um, um, vision. The third uh, thing that I would like to mention here is that the opposition to um, uh, politics of welfare is essential to uh, the universe of the moderates. Moderates oppose viewing the political arena as an arena for warfare. Uh, it's a rather an arena where people should and be able to compromise um, and find common ground, but it's certainly not uh, an arena for uh, warfare. And this propensity to see politics as warfare has increased in the last decades, in our politics at least, but I think other countries offer other good examples in this regard, and moderates push against that. I would mention one more um, uh, element here, which is uh, eclecticism. Um, I define moderates as eclectics because um, they start from the assumption that um, uh, the world is eclectic and um, um, can be seen through many windows. 
for example, uh, a moderate would say one can support a, social, a certain level of social democratic welfare state um, in economics, uh, be um, kind of conservative when it comes to culture and religion and very liberal when it comes to liberal in the, in the European sense of the world here, when it comes to uh, political uh, sphere, such as limited power is needed, uh, the state needs to be able to do its job, but not more than that. Um, individual rights must be protected and the privacy of individuals as well. So you can combine all of these three. That's what I would call eclecticism. It's not something that people tend to to, to uh, do easily, because uh, if you define yourself as, let's say, left-leaning in economics, you have to be left-leaning everywhere. Now, moderates uh, claim that you can um, you can combine, uh, depending on you know the circumstances, and that's very important, I think, in defining, uh, I think, the universe of moderation. You touch upon uh, going back to something you were saying a moment ago. You talk about how increasingly we. Uh, see politics as warfare, and 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 in war we 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 get to warfare is 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 a useful paradigm because it, it allows us to frame things in in absolutes, you know, victory, defeat, uh, advance, retreat, and and this. Uh, the fact that we do so, and you and you you point to uh, surveys which indicate that this really seems to be more uh, uh, common in America than 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 anywhere else in in the West currently, is 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 something that that points to the need for moderation today. The, the the fact that now more than ever we need to step back from that fact that we do frame politics as you put it, not as searching for compromise and balance in in, in a world of different viewpoints, but as you know, it, it's it's war of the knife, war to the death, which is not healthy for a functioning society. Absolutely. Um, one of the articles that I discuss in my book that is uh, very prominent on the right is an article written by Michael Anton called The Flight 93 Election. It was published in September 2016 before the presidential elections, and it was a call for embracing Donald Trump in that election. Um, the idea was that um, electing someone like Hillary Clinton would have been an existential threat to to the right, but also to the Republic, and people needed to, let's say, um, storm the cockpit, as it were. The Flight 93 is a, a, a metaphor here. Uh, it reminds us of the tragic Flight 93 that crashed uh, in Pennsylvania in September uh, 2001. So the, the, the urgency is, is conveyed with this metaphor. Uh, we need to do something because otherwise we'll be dead, we'll, 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 we won't survive. And that that heightens uh, that uh, heightens raises the stakes, heightens the the emotions, and and gives one a, a sense of um, uh, now or never, and and that leads to the politics of warfare. Um, when one side sees the other as an existential threat, uh, I think um, uh, the danger is is there. Uh, there is an exhortation. Uh, a passionate exhortation. America is heading off of a cliff. Everything is at stake in this war. Uh, it's now or never. Um, and that's something that moderates fight against and everyone should fight against, I guess, here. <laughs> uh, and and um, um, I, I've seen this um, 
in the aftermath of the 2020 elections as well. And I'm afraid I'm seeing it again uh, now that we are heading into the election year in 2024, we'll, we are going to see again. It's a paranoid style. Um, the paranoid style has been at work in, in American political tradition. Richard Hofstadter wrote a book about that. Uh, but the idea that politics should be equated with a crusade to cleanse the body politics of those who are not real Americans or real patriots or whatever, uh, it's very dangerous. And we need to oppose that. So you outline rules that you uh, for that that or, or, or principles to which radical moderates uh, should adhere, adhere to. I was wondering if you could perhaps briefly uh, describe those rules and, and, and how they contribute to uh, the, the strength of the radical moderation tradition that uh, that you uh, that you advocate for in your book. So there are 10 rules at the end of the book. That's the epilogue. Um, I, I like number 10. It's a kind of a decalogue, if you if you wish. But I won't read all of them. I will uh, I will mention a few. Um, one thing that I seems important to me um, is, is to emphasize uh, that moderates think politically rather than ideologically. Uh, they start with working the world as it is, not as it should be. And that's why um, moderates refuse to define a single best way. And that's an important distinction because most people have, uh, in the, let's say, tradition of, of thinking about the good society tend to be monomaniac in, in the sense that they take one principle and elevate it elevated to the rank of supreme value, in light of which everything else must be organized. And moderates oppose that. They do not interpret events and principles for reorganizing society in light of one single value or principle, liberty, equality, justice, and so forth. Instead, they uh, want to uh, combine these principles. Again, eclecticism comes uh, to mind here and try to keep... Uh, um, them in balance with each other. That's one rule. The other important rule that I would like to mention here is the dialogue with one's opponents. Keep the lines of dialogue open with your opponents and critics, even when the conversation uh, may become uncomfortable, um, and even when you, there's little to agree on with others. Um, I think that it's important to emphasize that um, the dislike of our opponents should never become absolute to the point of making us blind to their potential virtues and valuable arguments, whatever they may be. Um, if we think that indeed we are at, on the brink of, a, let's say, uh, not a civil war, but a kind of a civil disagreement, then we should get off Twitter and Instagram right away and start talking to our neighbors left and right, people whom we may disagree with, but who are our neighbors. Organize at grassroots level to pursue modest but concrete goals. Uh, that's what moderates do. And that's why in the book, I give some examples of organizations that seek to do precisely that, to organize at the grassroots level, uh, giving a much needed example of uh, civility in, in a time of heightened uh, ideological intransigence. Um, there are other uh, principles. Maybe I would mention one more. Uh, don't be a snowflake. Uh, have a tough skin and don't get offended too easily. Now, this may sound uh, trivial, but it's not. Um, uh, moderates understand that uh, people have different views and uh, 
Um, they don't get upset if uh, someone promotes uh, a certain set of ideas and values that go against theirs. Um, no particular idea should hurt you, uh, no matter how different uh, uh, from yours it might be. This is a lesson I took from Michel de Montaigne, whom I like a lot too, and he's quoted a lot in this book, by the way. Um, don't get upset. Uh, listen to your critics subject your own ideas to a, a thorough cross-examination uh, and uh, remain open to revising your own views. Um, that's what moderates do. And I think that everyone should be uh, following their examples. We appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, um, as I said at the beginning, I'm known as the person who writes immoderately about moderation. <laughs> so I would like to, <laughs> I'd like to take a, a little bit of a break. Uh, I, I want to promote the book uh, and speak about its its ideas because I think that they, they are relevant to our time. So uh, that's one part of my agenda right now. But there is a, another book manuscript in progress with two uh, colleagues and friends uh, at Indiana University, Dan Cole and Mike McGuinness. We are trying to write a book about liberal democracy, building upon the first part here of the conversation with my radical young friends. And we are trying to make an argument for why liberal democracy is valuable and how we should go about defending it. Uh, we draw upon the ideas of Karl Popper, but we also draw upon uh, the uh, ideas of one of our dear late colleagues, Eleanor and her husband, Vincent Ostrom, who died in 2012. Eleanor Ostrom was the first female winner of the economic Nobel Prize in economics in 2009. She was a colleague of ours, and we belong, so to speak, to what it's known in our circles as the Bloomington School uh, of Institutionalism. So we are trying to build upon that school um, the ideas of those uh, thinkers, uh, Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom, to uh, make an argument for liberal democracy. Well, that sounds like a very worthy project, and I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time, Aurelian. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate your talking to me.